So we are in the, the fourth lesson. The next week lesson is a summary of all that we have learned about the person of God. Um, the questions that we're going to be asking are, next week will be, what do we learn about the person of God? What do we learn about people? And what do we learn about ourselves from our investigation of the birth narratives, all that the Bible says regarding the birth of Christ. And I have written out a lot of it for you, and I'll give it to you next week, but I, I'm, I'm hoping for a very interesting interaction with you as we cover these uh, uh, topics. Uh, we are on page five, actually five or six, um, because we started the grace of God, the grace of God, We've already examined the power of God and the fact that he made a quite elderly woman who had been barren all of her married life. He miraculously enabled her to have a child, to conceive a child, and that child would be John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Messiah. And then we saw also the power of God in the Spirit of God overshadowing Mary and thus being able to conceive a child as a virgin. So we talked about God's power. God unleashes his omnipotent power in the serving of the purposes that he established in eternity past. And so we looked at that. Then we looked at the providence of God. And the providence is nothing more than an application of the uh, sovereignty of God. God is, has unlimited authority and his providence is the way he works his purposes through the natural and normal means. He organizes or foresees certain circumstances and situations so that they end up, in the end, achieving his purposes. And you saw that with Caesar Augustus, the man in the, between the years of uh, 29 and 14, 29 B.C., 14 A.D., the man who was the most powerful man in the world. And he issues a, a, a decree for a census to be taken. And because he issues that decree, this poor carpenter from Nazareth with the woman to whom he is betrothed, who is now in her ninth month of pregnancy, make an 80-mile trip all the way from uh, Nazareth to Bethlehem. And that was all done in the outworking of the providence of God. Uh, today, we're going to look at two things. Hopefully, we're going to get down the grace of God and the truthfulness of God, two other attributes, theology-wise, that are illustrated for us. Now, the grace of God is found, we're going to see that, if you will, in Luke chapter 2. So you want to go there. I'll read the passage, and then we'll talk a little bit about this, uh, this grace, because I want to make sure you understand it. In Luke chapter 2, and in verse 8, it said, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there was, has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. 
you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and laying in the manger. Now, I'm going to stop you. We're going to read more about that because we're also talk about, I should have said, we're going to learn today about the grace of God, the glory of the Lord, and then finally the truthfulness of the Lord. But the grace of God, let me just kind of, it's, it's there for you on the, the last part of verse 5, but let me kind of give you a definition uh, in addition. It is within the nature of God. When we talk about the grace of God, it is within His nature to bestow divine favor on the undeserving. It is a part of who He is. It is the fabric of the perfection of God's person that He bestows um, divine favor. He bestows good things, wonderful things upon people who are the undeserving. Matter of fact, some people, when they talk about salvation, which is a, a demonstration of God's grace to us, we'll look at some passages that highlight that. But when we talk about salvation, they use the word grace as an acrostic, which basically means Christ riches at God's expense. So it's a, it's a wonderful uh, way to look at it. That's what God does. Now, there's a list of verses up there at the top of page 6 that I want to show you. We kind of read by them, but I just want to remind you, warm your heart, I guess, is my ambition toward the wonder of you receiving the grace of God. So we're going to look at that. So the first A there, we're saved by grace. And, of course, many of you know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself, not of works, lest any man should boast. So your salvation is a gift to be received and not something you earn. That's the amazing thing about the grace of God. It's to be this salvation provided through the sacrificial death of Christ is to be received by faith alone. And there's no work. There's no paying back. It's a gift. Many of you are going to give out gifts. Now, if you're a grandparent, you probably wish this would happen, but it won't. You're not going to go to your grandchild and give them a wonderful Christmas gift and say, now there's a payment book that goes along with that. And you will make payments for the next year. To me. You don't do that. Because then it's not a what? It's not a gift. If there's a required payment, it's not a gift. And so salvation was sufficiently carried out through the cross work of Jesus Christ. And so it is now fully explained in the Bible as a salvation by grace. Uh, B, you're justified by his grace. Look at Romans. I'm going to look at some of these verses. Romans 3. Romans chapter 3 and verse 24 It says, being justified. Let me read. Let, can I read from 21 to 20? It just, I hate to read these things out of context there. It's, uh, and I'm looking at verse 24. Yeah, but let's look at verse 21. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. <coughs> Excuse me. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as what, folks? A gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So you are 
not only saved, but you are declared right standing with God and imputed to you is the only righteousness that God will accept for entrance into heaven. The very righteousness of God is imputed to you. So you therefore declared justified. In the highest court that exists, you are declared right standing with God. And that is significant because, again, notice it comes as a gift. Again, the implication of that is you cannot earn justification, just like you cannot earn salvation. These come to you as a gift. And then in Titus, C, Titus 2, Titus is right after 2 Timothy. Titus 2, we learn that grace is what sanctifies us. This is a very important lesson for us to learn here. Verse 11, for, by, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. He's referring to Christ as the personification of grace. He appeared, he is the personification of grace, and he brought salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. So there are sometimes people think of grace as a license to sin, which is not. Paul had to deal with that in Romans chapter 6. Uh, grace is not a license to sin. It is a means by which through the power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you are set apart to God. And he teaches you not to be unholy or to be ungodly, but rather he teaches you that you should be holy and separate, set apart to God. He instructs you that you would have an anticipatory attitude toward the coming of Christ for the church. That's what he means by that one part there where, where he's describing it as a looking, what is that verse uh, of 13, looking for the blessed hope, that's Christ, and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So grace is not an enablement or a license to sin. It is a means and an instrument that God uses for your sanctification. Again, what is sanctification? It is the practical set-apartness that happens in your life at the point of the application of biblical truth to your life. Sanctification is not knowledge of biblical truth. Sanctification is the application of knowledge. At the moment that you apply it, you are being set apart. Set apart from what? The lost and fallen world and its corrupt theology and its corrupt morality. You're not, you're not correlating or going or conforming with the world at that point. And all of that happens to you by grace. D, you're chosen by grace. Ephesians, look there in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> We're going to actually begin in verse 3. I say, it says 4 through 6, but uh, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, 
just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. That moment of being holy and blameless is when you are fully conformed to the image of Christ in glory. That's your future. He just described, he described your past. You were chosen by him. By the way, you were chosen, we're going to learn, by grace. That was a gift. And the future is that you'll be in glory, fully conformed to the image of Christ. So he talked about your past. He talked about your present. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that's the past, that we would be holy and blameless, that's the future. And then he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Now watch this. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So his grace, his favor, resulted in you being chosen before the foundation of the earth. It was nothing meritorious that he was looking at that you were going to achieve. It wasn't his omniscience that made this choice. It's his sovereignty. It's not his knowledge of everything. It's his sovereign choice. And he made that by grace. And that's what we find in that passage. Uh, by, by the way, just while you're in Ephesians, look in chapter 2. And uh, let me just read what we were. We've looked at this before. But let me read what we were prior to conversion. This is, was your spiritual condition, my spiritual condition. Um, theologians describe it as spiritual death. Uh, there's three kinds of death. There's a separation of the principle of life, which comes from God, and the body. That's when you become an inanimate object. <laughs> that's when you're not, no longer living. That principle of life is a gift. And that's the first kind of death. The second kind is spiritual death. Every person enters this world with the principle of life. They're alive, but they're born spiritually dead. So when you go and you look at those little babies in the nursery, they're little prepackaged sinners <laughs> waiting, waiting, to be, to, waiting to sin. That's the truth. I mean, you know, I know we grandparents run around show all these little pictures. And I suggested this to me. We'd say, look at little prepackaged sinner here and then tell them about how that's fleshed itself out <laughs> over the years. But that's the truth. So we're born physically alive, but spiritually dead. And then by the grace of God, at some point in our life, he calls you to himself. He overcomes the deadness of your soul at a history point in your life. And he grants to you repentance and faith and you are saved. That's called spiritual life. So your spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God. It's what makes people indifferent when you go to share the gospel with your friends or relatives at Christmas, and they're going, yeah, mm -hmm. they're totally indifferent because they're still in the condition of death. But perhaps the next time you see them, they can't get enough of the Word of God and they want to ask you questions like crazy. That's when I knew my, my brother was truly saved when I went to visit him and all he could do was keep on asking me questions. Kept on asking me that he never did that before. Um, the only question he would ask in the past was, how can I kill you legally? 
<laughs> so he never devised that plan. Thank God, I'm still here. But yeah, it, but it, you know, he was, couldn't get enough of God's word, and that happens. But let's read this passage. You were 2-1. You were dead. I like the way it is in the Greek. You were be being dead. It's a continuous situation. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of error, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now can I tell you something? You can't get faith out of that condition. You can't get repentance out of that condition. You can't. Look at that person. He's dead in his sins. He's formally walked means your formal regulation of your behavior. Peripateo means that, how you regulate your behavior. So your regulated behavior, the philosophy of your regulated behavior was according to the course of this world. So the world set the philosophy for your life. And so you, your behavior simply reflected the philosophy that governed your life. That's where you were. You, did not, you would not have acknowledged this, but you were functioning under the prince of the power of the air. That's another way of describing Satan. He is described in the Bible as the God of this world, not because he created the world. He didn't. But he's the God of the way this world thinks. He's, he's the God of the way the world establishes its theology and its philosophy and morality, which is all sinful and corrupt. And that's where you were. And then he says you were children of wrath. And what he means by that is the crosshairs of God's judgment were fixed on you. So you're dead and your destiny is eternal death. So this is real bad. But aren't you happy about verse 4? <laughs> but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions. So our condition is what? Dead. This is when he intervenes. Made us alive. Who made us alive? God. With Christ, by grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So it's, it's the grace of God that was exercised. It was the divine favor of God, people, that got you from the condition of death and brought you into the condition of life. And this is why on Sunday morning you should be pushing the ushers aside and say, back away, brother, I'm here to worship. I've been reflecting on what God has done for me and his grace and I'm here to worship. And you don't care when you're worshiping, raising your hands, and you're just fully into it. You just can't, because you're understanding what God bestowed upon you because of his grace. And that's a marvelous truth. So, so grace also redeems us. Let's go back to Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, and it also forgives us. And forgives us of our trespasses according to what? The riches of what? His grace. So two things happen to you because of the grace of God. You are redeemed. What is redeemed? 
it is a marketplace word in the original language. It is, um, uh, for example, they would have a slave market in the first century marketplaces, and people would be sold because they had a debt that they couldn't pay. So they would be sold sometimes by their owner who owned them because they owed money to them and they couldn't pay it. Then the greatest thing that could happen would be if somebody would be your redeemer. What's a redeemer? It's the redeemer who steps in and pays off that debt and sets you free. So the debt is no longer owed. You're freed from the slavery. And you and I were in the slave market of sin. And we were in bondage to sin. And our destiny was eternal damnation. But by God's grace, the riches of his grace, Christ redeemed you. And the currency for the redemption was his own blood. He paid with his own blood the price to set you free from a debt that you owed but could never pay. So how did that happen? By grace. And notice it also says in verse 7, you were forgiven. Remember I told you what forgiveness is. It is liberating or setting someone free from a debt that could be justly extracted from them. So you, redeeming and forgiveness go hand in hand. Redemption talks about the payment and forgiveness talks about the result. Get it? Redemption talks about the payment that set you free. Forgiveness is the result. You have been freed from a debt you could not pay. You have been set free. And how did that happen? By the grace of God. So grace is such a wonderful, wonderful benefit to the character of God, and it's found in his character. And we see grace in this story in just a minute. One other thing I want to show you from Acts chapter 18 I'm glad I did this because I was going to blow by it for the sake of time and I thought, man, I'm going to miss out on all of the wealth of that truth. I don't want to do that. So we'll just send someone in to Pastor Rich and say, hey, that whole class is not coming in. Jerry's not done. And see. <laughs> he, he would say, what else is new? Yeah. Acts chapter 18 and verse 27 um, 1827. Uh, let me kind of back it up so you get a little of the story there. This is the story of Aquila, great teacher that, um, I'm sorry, I, I said Aquila. Um, uh, I'm talking about Apollos. Both begin with A. Apollos was a great teacher, and Priscilla and Aquila had to come to him and correct him because he was not teaching probably correctly on the baptism. He had been baptized by John's baptism, which is a baptism of repentance. Christian baptism is different. Christian baptism is, your, is the public uh, surrender of yourself to Christ that indicates the reality of the faith that you exercise in him. It's a public demonstration of that. And so they gave him some correction, these two people. If you look in verse 26, and he began to speak out boldly, in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way that God, the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, 
the brethren encouraged him and wrote and wrote to, to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through what? Grace. Grace is what enables you to believe. And so that's made mention there. Now, what does this have to do with the birth narrative? Well, if you notice, let's go back again to Luke chapter 2. <clears throat> the grace of God is demonstrated in a twofold way in this birth narrative. The grace of God is demonstrated, again, remember what is grace? It is his nature to provide divine favor upon the undeserving. And what did he do? In Acts or in Luke chapter 2, beginning verse 8, and especially verse 11, <clears throat> um, he says, Well, look at verse 11. That's where he's, he says, For today, he's talking to the shepherd, the angel is, For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, a Savior, a Sotir in the original language. What is that? It's someone who rescues someone from a danger or violence, especially used of Jesus, Sotir, Savior, as the one who rescues his people from their sins and the resulting danger of eternal judgment. So that is the grace of God being demonstrated to this world in that what we needed the most in this world was a Savior. And so God is saying, I'm providing a Savior. Uh, it's made me change my whole idea of my understanding of Christmas. It's sort of a negative, but I'm going to give it to you anyways. Christmas is a testimony to the truth that I'm a wretched sinner who could never save himself. Why? Because by the grace of God, what did he send to the world? He didn't send a theologian. He didn't send a politician. He didn't give us another philosopher. He gave us a savior. And not just any kind of savior. This one is Christ the Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the sovereign God. And then the other part of the grace of God is in the first audience to hear that message. The very first people to hear that message were the shepherds, which is also a demonstration of God's grace. If you look at your notes, <clears throat> I'll point that out to you, make it evident to you. Hopefully I will. <clears throat> yeah. After verse 11, <clears throat> no, I'm going to go back to verse, the top of the page. <laughs> uh, actually, I want to go back to page 6. I've got to remember my own notes here. Let's see if I got that right, folks. Hang on a second. Okay, that's weird. I'm looking for five, yeah. Six, seven, eight. What the danger is I put 
the notes behind me. Ah, that's what I did. Oh, yeah, on page six, I was right on six. And where you see it, um, print, uh, bold print, verse eight, it seems appropriate to us to have shepherds involved in the Christmas scene because that what has been, and by the way, it's E-M-B-E-D-D-E-D. -E -D -E -D. I found that out this morning when I went to the dictionary. I wanted to make sure that I had that. I thought, that doesn't look right. It's a stupid computer, and I just got it. Already making mistakes. So it's embedded, not me. Of course, I wouldn't do that. But, uh, you know, it's been embedded in us throughout the centuries that shepherds were there, right? But having shepherds associated with the entrance of the Messiah into the world would have not been appropriate in the first century <clears throat> to Jewish people. Shepherds were despised class of men because of their profession and its demands. It was very difficult for these men to observe all the details of the law and of the traditions that the rabbis had developed over the centuries. Shepherds were not the most religious men, not viewed as the most spiritual men. They couldn't observe the meticulous hand washings and rules and regulations. Therefore, the religious elite of Judaism viewed them as being ceremonially unclean. The Mishnah, which is a collection of the rabbinical writings and traditions of that age, lists shepherds among a group that was not to give testimony in a court of law. They were not to be trusted. Then look in the little box. These were simple men, not well-educated, social outcasts, they were despised and lowly among men, but God, being rich in mercy and grace, did not think them unworthy to be the first to hear the greatest good news that the world has ever received. <clears throat> God blessed these shepherds, reading below that, who were watching their flock by night by giving them the first announcement of his son's birth and the privilege of being the first among men to announce it to men. And this is not, not the way of men, the way they would have done it. They would have commissioned an angel to go to the kings of the earth or the great religious leaders of that time and tell them that God's Messiah had come. Surely you would not imagine that the high priest or the Pharisees or the scribes should have heard that message first. Top of the next page. Make sure I get there. <clears throat> Yes, <clears throat> and although this was completely inconsistent with man's way, it was completely consistent with God's grace, bestowing on the undeserving benefits and blessings. And so because of the grace of God, the first gospel came to the social outcast of Jesus' day. These lowly shepherds would be the first to see the Lamb of God. And this is only right because they represented the outcast and sinners whom Jesus came to save. So it is an amazing thing. We tend to read right by that, to blow right by that. But to me, it's just amazing that that's the first people. He didn't go to the local synagogue and, you know, send an angel there to tell him, hey, listen, the Messiah has come. He's in Bethlehem in a manger. He didn't do that. These lowly guys the bottom of the ladder in the social class were the first ones he told. And that's really good because that does represent the kind of people that God saves. I want you to look just as a connection with this to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1. And uh, I'm going to pick it up in verse 26. Consider, for consider your calling, your calling there again. Remember what I told you? It's called the effectual call. It's where God intervenes into your life. Um, he delivers you from the bondage of sin, and He imparts to you the repentance and faith needed for salvation. <clears throat> 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many of you wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, and the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God, the righteousness and sanctification and redemption. <clears throat> so just as it is written, he's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 9, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. There's nobody in heaven going to say, listen, I, I don't know why you're here, but I know why I'm here. You know, I have several doctorates in theology or, <clears throat> you know, I <clears throat> was a wealthy Christian businessman, whatever. Whatever the junk is that we use to measure people against people, <clears throat> none of that works up there. All the boasting, all the glory, continuously goes to the one who saved you by grace. And it doesn't matter what you did on earth in terms of your status. Uh, and he demonstrated that right from the beginning because he goes by grace and he talks to these men and he gives them, <clears throat> turn back to that Luke chapter 2 <clears throat> passage. Uh, he says in verse 10 to these, the angel does, but to the angel he said, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news. You know that word good news? Yoangalizo. We get the word evangelism from that. It is the good news about the saving work of Christ. <clears throat> so I bring you good news of great joy, and it's for all the people. And uh, so this is something that I wanted to make sure that you clearly understood, that we've got this one who is going to save us and has saved us, and there is none other. Matter of fact, Peter, in, in page 7 there, about halfway down the page, I have a quote from him from Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. He says, there's salvation in no one else. Because remember, the Savior that God is providing is the Savior. He's not one among many. And what makes him unique in his saving relationship is that he's the only one who can free you from the bondage and the eternal condemnation of sin. He's the only one given that responsibility. That's why... He is the exclusive Savior. And Peter says there in 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It's not Vishnu. It's not Shiva. It's not Allah. 
It's not any of the other kinds of gods that people invent in their mind. There's no other means to be saved but through Christ. That's why I told you, for some of you who are in my Roman Catholic study, I said the problem with a Roman Catholic person is not their Catholicism. The problem is that they are dead in their trespasses and sins. And the Catholic formula can't deliver them. Do you understand? That's the problem. When you give yourself to a belief system that can't deliver you from your sins. The good works and the sacraments and all that stuff can't supplement, complement what Christ did so effectively. There's no other place for salvation. It's only in Christ. Uh, 1 John 4, 14, the verse right below it from the Apostle John, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That should end all discussions that I see sometimes in Time Magazine. Why did Jesus come? It's like dead in your trespasses and sins, but you own a magazine. Why did he come? He came to be the Savior of the world. What was announced by the angels to the shepherds? Today, you have a theologian. No. Today, you have a Savior who is the Messiah. Matthew 1.21, remember that? She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. This is the angel talking to Joseph. And he will save his people from their sins. His name, Yahshua, means the Lord is salvation. So, you know, and this is the part, by the way, that your world does not like. In a world of plurality, we live in a pluralistic culture. In other words, we believe it is right in our culture, it is kind, it is thought to be the polite thing to do, is to believe that there are many different religions with many different ways to, to make it to their God or their nirvana or becoming at one with the one or whatever the ultimate prize in that particular religious system is, and it's believed in our culture, that's the way you view religion. Pluralistically, pluralistically, that's the word. Um, uh, like the Methodist uh, preacher I heard on PBS when he was asked about this, doesn't Christianity teach there's only one way to be saved? And he said, I look at it this way. Always be careful when a guy begins that way. I look at it this way. Salvation is a lot like a hub in a wheel. And there are many spokes to get you to the hub. And that's when I broke my TV, so I didn't see any more after that. <laughs> but in other words, no. Unto you has been born a Savior, the exclusive one who is the one who is going to save his people from their sins. Okay, so now after that, let's go over to page 8. And uh, in verse 12, at the top of the page there, it asks you this question about verse 12, just to highlight this for you. Uh, remember, this is what the angel said to the shepherds in verse 12. This will be uh, Luke 2, 12. 
for this will be a sign for you that you'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and laying in a manger. And I asked this question at the top of the page, how does this verse help us understand why there was no room for them in the inn? <laughs> kind of a weird question to ask now that I think about it. Well, from the very beginning, we know that God is set apart from the world. And this just showing that set apart. He is not like every other baby born. He's set apart. Yeah, he's not like every other baby, that's for sure. Why, in this context, where were the other babies in Bethlehem? Pardon me, I didn't get that last part. Yeah. It was so that the shepherds could easily find him. How many babies do you think were laying in a manger on that night? <clears throat> that's, that, that, yeah, that's totally, totally unusual. The inn probably had a lot of babies. Remember what was happening? Everybody was flooding the city of Bethlehem because of the census demands. And remember, the end was full. That's why they went to there. But that's not really the real reason. In the providence of God, the end was full so that he could be, the baby, easily found. And he was easily, easily found by the shepherds. They went, and guess what? They found him. So that's another demonstration. If you look at below uh, verse 12 and the two lines there, because of the mandated census, there could have been several babies in the inn, but there would only be one baby that night that would be laid in a feeding trough for animals and wrapped in cloths. <clears throat> I'm sure all the ladies here who had children would greatly protest if I said, this is what we're going to do with your brand new baby. <clears throat> There's a nice barn out there. There's a feeding trough. We're going to lay him there. He'll be nice and snug in the nay. <laughs> Most of you would have said, no, that ain't going to happen. It's, no. He needs to be, it's cold. My, my wife was always, the, the kids were always cold. So when I took them out in the winter, I took out a big cocoon because <laughs> they were cold. <clears throat> I get it. That's what moms do. Next uh, section, it says, it's doubtful that the shepherd had ever seen a baby in such an unlikely place. The indignity was reserved. This indignity was reserved for the Lord of life and glory when he came into our world. This is how he entered the world. And at that moment, there were only two people, and now with the shepherds, there were only two people who were with him when he entered the world, but then later on would come the shepherds. At the second coming, that's totally different. Second coming, according to Jesus' words in Matthew 24, everyone on planet Earth will know that he has come but not the first coming because the first coming had to do with him saving you from your sins. First coming, <clears throat> he came for the cross. Second coming, he comes for his throne. And he begins a millennial rule on earth. So that's important. There's two different comings mentioned in the Bible, the Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, the Jews always got a little confused with that. And that really threw them off. 
<clears throat> but that's what he did. The first coming was for the cross, second coming for the throne. Now, let's talk about the glory of the Lord. <clears throat> the glory of the Lord, because I want us to look now at Luke chapter 2 and verse 13. <clears throat> I think it's the only Bible verse that the people at Hallmark have ever read, but it's a good one uh, in verse 12 or 13. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men. Let's stop right there. No, we shouldn't stop right there because there's a big qualifier right after that, right? With whom he is well pleased. So the peace on earth is found by those with whom he is well pleased. Now we need to understand what that means. Who are these individuals? And we're going to get to that. But at first I want to tell you that there's two types of glory that are used frequently when you're speaking about God. The first is his intrinsic glory. If you'll turn the page, you'll see what I mean. His intrinsic glory on page 9. The intrinsic glory. I'll give you a basic definition of intrinsic glory. Um, the intrinsic glory is the outshining of the sum of the total perfections of his attributes. So when John gets a vision of the throne in heaven, he doesn't see a person sitting on the throne in the book of Revelation. But he sees all this resplendent, reflected light. He says almost like a rainbow. All of this emanating light. And all of that is coming from the very perfection of all that God is in his attributes. All the different attributes together form the intrinsic glory of God, the weightiness of God, the significance of who he is. There's nobody else that exists that is that perfect and that glorious. So it's intrinsic in his person. You could read all that. I'm kind of running along here for the sake of time, but um, that whole definition is very good. But what you see happening here in Luke chapter 2 is what is called the ascribed glory. There's the intrinsic glory, the ascribed. Now let's look at that definition. It's simpler. Uh, the ascribed glory, which is the glory we give to God to render to him the praise and the worship that belongs to him exclusively. And the more we understand of his intrinsic glory, the perfection of his attributes, the outshining of it, and the more, the more we will ascribe to him glory, honor, and praise that is rightly his. A low view of God leads to low worship. A high view of God leads to high worship and a high and holy living. So we ascribe to God. And what the angels are basically saying is they're ascribing they're, they're saying, listen, honor to God. Honor to God to the highest ports of heaven, to the outer limits of heaven. God needs to be honored. We need to ascribe to him the honor that is due to him. Why? Because of what they said earlier. He's provided a savior who is Christ the Lord. And now those whom... God is pleased with are the, those you're going to learn. They're the individuals who exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
they now have peace. So he was not addressing peace between nations. You know, if Jesus came to bring peace between nations and all people, then we have to say that Jesus failed. If he came to bring peace among all men, if that was his ambition, you have to say he failed. I think I looked it up once, and I, I think it was like in the thousands of how many wars have been fought since Jesus was born. So if Christ came to bring nations and people to peace, then we have to say it failed. But the peace that the angels are talking about is the peace of a sinful, redeemed man who now has peace with God. There's the absence of an adversarial relationship with God. You now possess a harmonized relationship with God. You and God are at peace. So when God returns, you don't fear him as a judge. You welcome him as your father and your savior and your provider because you have peace. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 highlights that. So if you got that on your Christmas card, if it says, you know, peace on earth among men, just take a marker or something and then add that one conditional clause. <laughs> Because it, it has to be added in there. It isn't appropriate to just say peace. But in Romans chapter 5, in verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he came to accomplish. He built a bridge between a perfectly, morally perfect God and the wretched sinner, completely darkened by their sin. He built a bridge by his cross. So now we can be in harmony with a holy God. Sinful man and a holy God can be at peace. And you have that. Now, every time I look at these kind of things, this is what pushes me to be on the verge of being charismatic. I, I just, I, I want to shout, you know. I just sent one of my young guys that I'm working with a message that I did in 2021, um, and it was on um, the coming judgment. In the Revelation 21, it was on the judgment of God. But I got so excited about our deliverance from it, I actually screamed at the church. I don't know what they thought. Of course, I can't remember. It was 20, 2001 when I did that. But I, I screamed at the truth that, you know, like, don't you realize what this means? That this horrible thing that we're watching right now, people being cast into the lake of fire, which is an eternal damnation, eternal punishment, it never gets any better. It's forever. You have been rescued. <laughs> That's not you. You're not there. You, you, you come to another 
Bema seat judgment. You stand before Christ and it's not about issues of sin and, and hell or heaven. It's all settled. It's an issue of gain or loss of reward based upon what you did for the kingdom with the gifts he gave you. But you don't face that. That never gets any better, you see. So I shouted. Amen. Thank you, thank you. I know you're going for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it didn't work that well, so I did, yeah, yeah. All right, so, yeah, I want to look at Psalm 29. Again, Just a, it's a passage that highlights this whole idea of ascribing to God. Psalm 29. Just a couple of verses there. Psalm 29, just rule 1 and 2. Uh, and, and this is an exhortation to do this very thing. Ascribe, this is the ascribe glory. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory do his name. And worship the Lord in holy array. Or the, the word holy array means magnificence or splendor. And so, in other words, we are to ascribe to him worship and honor because of the holiness and the perfection of who he is. It's an amazing and wonderful truth. Well, for the sake of time, let's move on to the truthfulness of God, page 10. You can read all that stuff. Next week, it's going to really make a lot of sense because I'm pulling it all together and giving you a summary of everything we've learned. You'll like it. I've got some additional goodies in there as well for you. Uh, the truthfulness of God. Now, when we talk about the truthfulness of God, we understand that the Bible presents him as truth in his person and truth in his revelation. What does that mean? Truth in his person means that truthfully, he's the only true God. People can have all kinds of ideas about who God is, but in truth, there's only one true God. And he's mentioned that way all the time. There's only one true God. And people may worship other gods, they may give their dedication to other gods and all of that, but there's only one true God. And truth, what does that mean? Truth is that which consistently conforms to reality. This is why your culture hates it. Because truth says there are moral absolutes. Well, how can I live a sinful life if there are unbendable, absolute truth, moral directives given to me? So I'm going to change that. There is no truth. There's, I, I'm, my culture says, listen, there's truth for you and truth for me. There's no hierarchy. But that's not true in the Bible. Christ is the personification of truth. I am the way, the truth, the life. The Spirit of God, I think we'll see it today in the sermon, is described as the Spirit of truth. So truth is that which consistently conforms to reality. And there's no way... You can scream at it, you can cry about it, you can protest it. Truth doesn't budge. You can get very angry at the truth that has been discovered by scientists way, way back. 
that there is something called the law of gravity. And, and you could say, I don't like the law of gravity. I want to fly. And you can get up on top of this building and jump off. And guess what? Truth takes over. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter how you feel. Truth always, at the end, wins. Time and truth go hand in hand. And truth always wins. And so my God is truthful. He's truthful in what he's revealed and what we have written. Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. King David said, the sum of your word is truth. So he's true in his revelation because he's true in his person. I can trust the Bible because he's the original author. So everything I read in the Bible is true because it comes from a God who's true. You understand that? They all go together. And you say, well, how has God demonstrated truth here? Well, here in this story, everything came to be just as he said it would. He prophetically declared this coming to happen. Back in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, he said that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And he was, exactly. He promised Mary certain things that would be true about her child. And now they're articulated one more time. Look at the story there as we wrap it up in Luke chapter 2. In verse 15, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that had happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Do you think that the Lord told them the truth? Yeah, yeah. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby. And let's add the drummer boy and the Smurfs and no. <laughs> None of those were there, just so you, in case you didn't know about that. But I'm always, I'm always looking at people's outdoor, you know, I'm going to start putting like an A or an A minus or an F on their nativity scenes. You know, no snowmen there. Sorry. No Smurfs. Uh, so where was I? Yeah, in verse uh, 16. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he laid in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about the child. What was the statement? Verse 11. Uh, it said, For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So they're telling Mary this and Joseph. And if you look in Luke chapter 1, just flip back, Luke chapter 1, what did Mary hear from the angel about who this person is? Verse 31, And behold, Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. So the emphasis there is he's the fulfillment to the promise that God had made to King David, that one from his own descendancy would occupy a throne that lasts forever. And your son, your son, is the fulfillment of that. Wow. 
That's amazing. Verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And of course the angel said, listen, the spirit of God is going to come upon you and you will conceive a child. Is there anything impossible with God? And the answer is, well, there isn't. So everything that was said about this child has proven itself to be what? Truth. Because it comes from a God who's true. He's truth in his person. God has no competition. He is the only true God. I want to show you what I think is kind of funny. It's from Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah, one of the prophets. <clears throat> you know, Israel got in a big, big time trouble because they apparently did not understand that truth that there's only one true God. And so they got involved in the polytheism of their culture. They started believing in all the different kinds of gods that the culture uh, invented over a period of time. And so Jeremiah in chapter 10, uh, he addresses that issue with them. I think it was 27 years that Jeremiah ministered uh, to Judah. And if you were a church growth expert, you would have said, Jeremiah, you failed. As far as we know, there was nobody who was following Jeremiah. But he was dead on center in the will of God, doing exactly what God told him to do. He went to his own hometown and they threw him in a cistern. <laughs> it was in that cistern where he said, you know, I'll paraphrase it. <clears throat> this is a tough. I, I, I don't think I'm going to do this anymore. But then he said this, but your word burns in my heart. I have to do it. So he goes back out. And they continue to... And, and look at some of the things that he said. Look in the, the 10th chapter, verse 1. It says, Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Do not learn the way of the nations. Do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens although the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the people are delusion because it's wood cut from the forest. He's talking about their idols. <laughs> it's, a, it's almost like saying, look, it's a chunk of wood. You know that's true because you're the one who cut it down. It's a chunk of wood from the forest. The work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. They decorate it with silver and gold they fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, it makes, reminds me of there's a celebration in um, India where they have, they create these huge structures made out of wood and they march in a parade and at the top of the structure is their particular god. There's 320 million gods in Hinduism and so their particular god is at the top of that structure. And at the top of the structure, there's always four or five guys gathered around the idol. What do you think they're trying to do? When that big structure is marched down the street, they make sure it doesn't totter and fall down. And that's what he's saying here. You have to, you have to make sure that this God that you created doesn't totter, verse 4. And then verse 5, and this is really a slam. 
like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, are they? <laughs> you know, just out there. They can't do anything. The birds use them for purposes that I won't describe. But nonetheless, and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. walk. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. It's a piece of wood. It's an imagination that you turned into material. That's all it is. And then verse 6, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men in the nations and all their kingdoms, there is none like you. But they are altogether stupid and foolish in their discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood, bitten silver, brought from Tarshish, gold from Upaz, the work of a craftsman, the hands of a goldsmith. And then he goes on in verse 10, the Lord is the true God, true God. The Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting King. And his wrath, and at his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. So he is the one true God. Now, the next part that you have is the veracity of God, and it looks like this it's all the fulfillments, all the things that were fulfilled when Christ came on that day. They were talked about in the Old Testament, and they're fulfilled in the New Testament. So I would greatly encourage you to look at those, look at all those times where these things were prophetically stated and all the times when they are fulfilled exactly as God said them. Um, there's 327 details in the Old Testament of the life and ministry of Jesus, 327 details that were fulfilled exactly as they were given. Now that has to be some kind of coincidence, huh? 327 details. It comes from a God of truth, a God who knows the past, a God who knows the present, and a God who knows the future, and he just lets you in. The book of Revelation is not new information that nobody, nobody ever heard. Everything in the book of Revelation was known by God in eternity past. He's just letting you in on the information. So keep this in mind when we talk about Christmas. We only got a couple of minutes. Any questions? On, I mean, I gave you, today is unfair. It's kind of like dump truck day. When you take all this stuff and you dump it on the heads of people. Any questions? You got it? You understand it? Your whole Christmas has changed? <laughs> Invite your family over and say, folks, guess what we're celebrating today before we eat dinner? We are celebrating the truth that every one of us here are wretched, hopeless sinners. Who needed a savior? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. Well, a big part of it is what we looked at when we looked at uh, Ephesians two one and two. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. Uh, one of the wonderful things that happened to you when you believe is the Holy Spirit took up residence in you and he illuminates you to the truth. <clears throat> you could be deeply, deeply religious, as many of them were. Paul was deeply religious, but he didn't get it. 
until that day when he encountered Christ. Then the Spirit of God came in him and illuminated his understanding. So without that, that ministry of the Spirit of God, people just don't get it. And of course, there were some, some things that they interpreted so wrong because even then they thought when the Messiah came, he would immediately rescue them from all of their oppressors and he would create Israel as a sovereign nation and deliver them from the taxes and all the other things that they had a burden with. And that's not the purpose of the first coming. That's the second coming, but they mixed them up. So it's, it, it's, it's just like when I've talked with, I've talked with religious men who are big officials in their religion and they disagree with practically everything I said today. Um, there, there's a, the Archbishop of Canterbury last year where his message was, listen, you can be a Christian without believing in the resurrection. Now, how can a man stand before such a large audience and make that statement? Because he's dead in his trespasses and sins, and he does not have the clarity that comes when you're born again, when the Spirit of God comes. Because I remember I, clipped, I cut that clip out because you know, made in the news and everything. You want to make sure everybody knew you can be a Christian. You don't have to believe in the resurrection. And he went on to say the most important thing about Christianity is the good principles that it gives to us for life. You see. So, yeah. Yeah, it's just, I'm sorry about that. It, it hurts the heart, you know, when you, when you meet with people like that, even your relatives. And they look at you as you're strange, yeah. Jerry, we live um, near a synagogue and two yeah. houses from the rabbi. Yeah. And uh, right now they're celebrating Hanukkah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we just see them worship on on uh, Saturday with uh, their Orthodox. Yeah. There. But we pray for them all the time. Yeah. And, uh, mm -hmm. I hope one day to meet the uh, rabbi. Right. Right. And interesting. Yeah, Marty Zide would be a good one to meet the rabbi. They don't, they don't always like Marty for some reason. <laughs> But um, um, Hanukkah is the celebration of light, right. in particular when in the Maccabean Wars uh, where they were being surrounded and they only had enough, uh, uh, enough flu oil to carry them one day, but it took them through eight days. And all of that is a symbol of the light. Remember what Jesus said? I am the light of the world. And they, you know, even to them, he spoke that to the Jews, which I'm sure they had to think about, you know, that, the celebration of Hanukkah. They're very religious people. Very religious, very yeah. Very strict. Yeah. yeah. I remember reading about dedicated, uh, if you want to call them Orthodox Hindus, uh, that they have a celebration every year where the Euphrates and another river cross together. There's pretty quick... Um, what do you call that? Um, um, when the water is moving fast, I don't know what you go. Current. Current. Thank you. Thank you for that. Whoever gave me that. Um, and some of them, in their dedication, swim to the middle of that and commit co a religious suicide. So it's an expression of their dedication. So people will go to that end. You know, it's a real sad reality. Well, remember, there was a time in Israel when they were worshiping the god Moloch. 
And so they would have children, they would wait for them to be able to walk, and then they would walk them into the fires of sacrifice for, for Moloch. That's what you do when you're dead. When you, you just... But you're all alive, right? I could tell by the look in your eyes today. I did see you were exonerated, though, in, uh, about your shouting in Psalm 100. Shout joyfully to the Lord. We don't do that anymore here. All the earth. <laughs> you're good. You're yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. All right, guys, let's go to the next one.